people talk about love at first sight all the time and and you hear the stories of it i never really understood what that was until i got through security and customs and they were all there waiting for me they had signs and everything and my mom and my dad rushing to me and literally not letting go and my mother just breaking down Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to hear from John, who called me from Bowling Green, Kentucky. John grew up questioning why he looked different from his parents, and when he asked about himself as a baby, his parents broke down. His adoption from Chile happened during a tumultuous time when their government supported the adoption of its own children, but the source of John's separation from his family was much closer to home. In reunion, John made the long journey to be face-to-face with his biological parents, see his homeland, and reconnect with his birth family with what he believes is support from his adoptive parents from above. This is John's journey. John grew up in Houston, Texas, a diverse and welcoming city as he described it. He said he never experienced much adversity in his community and didn't learn to see people for their color. He simply experienced his community as it was with the rich mix of people it offered. In school and in his neighborhood, John noticed the similarities between his friends and their parents, but the differences between himself and his mom and dad. His parents were well off as a result of his mother's hard work as an attorney and his father's career in the oil industry. John shares a bit about his relationship with his parents growing up. My father was a very, very humble man. He was one of those guys that would never tell me no. He would let me learn lessons. And he would then, once I made a mistake, he would just sit down with me and talk to me and say, okay, what'd you learn? We understand that's not the right thing. Okay, now let's get you out of it. My mother was very different. My mother was extremely protective of me. She could never have kids of her own. And I'm pretty sure there were a couple of miscarriages before that I really never knew about with her and my father. And so she was strict with me growing up a little bit. And so you almost had two polar opposites Mm -hmm. uh, that I would grow up with. And then at about seven years old, they decided to separate. And my mother remarried. My father never did. So I would constantly go back and forth between the two. My father would have the weekends. My mother would have the weekdays. Um, And then I would have my stepfather as well. And my stepfather was half Mexican, half white. You hear the term coconut a lot. (laughs) Brown on the outside, white on the inside. (laughs) Both of us really were coconuts. I never learned how to speak Spanish or, or anything like that. But after figuring things out with with my situation on how I was adopted and all that, I look back and I see different things that happened during my childhood that were clues as to why my mother was so protective of me Mm. and things that happened that I didn't necessarily understand then that now makes sense as to why my mother was the way that she was and my father was the calm, cool, collected voice of reason. So I want to dig into that a little bit, but can you tell me, before we get to that, you said that you noticed that you didn't look like your parents, but other people did. How did that come home for you? What Did you say something to your parents? Did you ask them about it? And, and what would they say in response? I did. I did. I, I distinctly remember probably at about five or six years old. I think it was after an open house at my elementary school i was meeting all my friends and we were having a bunch of fun and then my friends would all be like oh i look most like my dad no i look most like my mom and 
this and that. And then they would come to me and who do you look like, John? And I said, well, I don't look like either one of them. Oh, that's weird. And that, and that would become a topic of conversation. So I remember distinctly asking my mom and dad, I, I said, why, why don't I look like you guys? What did something happen when I was a baby or something like that? And both of them broke down. They started crying because they didn't know, obviously, at the time. And I didn't know. They didn't know when this subject would come up. And they were very open about it, that my mom couldn't have kids from different medical issues that she would have. It wasn't her fault or anything like that. But it was just one of those unfortunate situations that she couldn't. And so they then told me. They told me at the time the story that I ran with that my mother and father were just very young when they had me and they couldn't take care of me. And so they wanted to adopt and my mother and father, birth parents, decided to give me up for adoption. So I would ask them, did, did you ever meet my mother and father? And They told me no, they never did. They never really knew the, the full story on everything. They just knew that I was from Santiago, Chile and that that they were just very young. And so that's what I that's what I knew growing up, growing up. That's what I just ran with and that was the story that I had. All I knew is that okay, I'm in a good place, I'm adopted. I, I could be with a, a set of parents that are just very young and, and didn't know how to take care of me. And you know what? Hey, I lucked out here. Mm -hmm. That's what I that's just what I knew. Mm -hmm. And how did you look different from your parents? I think I know what you're saying, but I want to hear what your description is. And mother how did you was, fit yeah. into your community as well? My mother was from Nebraska. She was from Omaha, Nebraska and Council Bluffs. And my mother was a probably about five foot two, five foot three brunette and wore glasses, Caucasian. And my father was about six one, six two, beard. He was in the military, he was Air Force, and he grew up in Texarkana, Texas, and George West, Texas, so two almost polar opposites, one in kind of the southeast portion of Texas, going about an hour north of Corpus Christi, four hours south of Houston, and then in Texarkana, where the rest of the family is right there on the Texas-Arkansas border. So he grew up in nothing but those two places, and... Of course, both of them are very fair-skinned, Caucasian, and here I am, this olive-skinned person. I've got just the natural tan that you would typically see from a person from Chile or, or of Latino descent, and so that that was the ring. That was the big thing that you could always see. Yeah, that makes sense. That's and it's helpful. Because when I think of Houston, I know there's a massive black community, as you've said. There's a huge Latino community, as you've said. It's a very diverse city. So I wanted to get a, a picture of how you were feeling different. Yeah, I would always, my friends, I would have, obviously, Latino friends. You would naturally gravitate to them, just as other African-American people gravitate to African-Americans. And other white people gravitate to others. But again... I say this, that it was such a, a profound thing for me growing up around multiple different skin colors, multiple different religions, multiple different cultures, that I could always find solace in that, that everybody looked different. Nobody looked the same. And so that was a comfort to me growing up in a community like that, in a community that literally did not see color at all. They didn't see any of that. It was extremely welcoming of other cultures and ways of life in Houston at that time. And still to this day, Houston is still, it's almost similar to New York City. It's mm -hmm. extremely diverse. So you're not going to go anywhere in that town without seeing somebody of a different race, religion, culture, creed, whatever it may be. And you have the ability to learn about those. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I love communities like that. My my community where I grew up in Columbia, Maryland was similar, where it was a planned community, where it was intentional that you were not supposed to think about people for their socioeconomic status or their race, culture, or creed. So I'm sensitive to what you're saying in terms of growing up, not necessarily seeing color until much later and feeling okay about that, because I think we see a lot Absolutely. of color these days and it's dangerous. Absolutely. 
As John got older, his mind matured and his self-awareness grew stronger, and he asked more and more questions of his mother and father. He wondered if they ever thought of taking him to Chile and if they ever thought about helping him to find his birth parents. This was something that my father, he was very open to. He wanted me to feel very complete. I, I talk about him with a lot of reverence because the man was literally my best friend. And he's the one that kind of opened my eyes to being open to different things and accepting of other people. And he would always tell me that if I ever wanted to go, he would support me in that. He wouldn't want me going down there just searching for a needle in a haystack, but he would support me in doing that. And he could never really give me much more answers than what I had growing up. I would hold some things against my mother at the time because I didn't really understand some different things that would happen that would, again, be a lot more clear now, such as when my mother and father divorced, there was a period of time when I was gone from my mother. I really didn't see her for a period of probably about six months, and I primarily lived with my father. And I never really understood why. I remember crying on my father's shoulder, where's mom? Why doesn't she love me? All this other stuff. And then magically one day she pops up. And now I'm living at her place most of the time. And I'm only seeing my father on the weekends. That was very confusing. Then as I started to grow up and form a mind of my own, I became very resentful towards my mother in regards to that. And I would tell her, hey, you're the one that abandoned me for this long. You're the one that did this. And I became a little rebel. I would, you know, partake in some certain things and, and I would be getting with the wrong type of people. And that kind of resonated for a while. And my mother and I were not exactly the best of friends. We would, we would butt heads a lot. But getting into college, I was lucky and I was blessed that I fell with fell into a group and they helped me a lot, whether they know it or not. And that's my fraternity. I, I, I was lucky enough to pledge a group called Sigma Lambda Beta. They are in a Latino based fraternity, but they much like myself growing up, they don't see color just because they're Latino based. There are plenty of white boys. There are plenty of African-Americans. You will see, you will see black Latinos. There were just, there are so many different cultures and we as a fraternity would embrace that. And it drew me to them. How just open about all that stuff that they were and how prideful they were about the different places that they would come from, whether it be Mexico or Puerto Rico or Dominican, or whether they were just from Chicago and how close we all were and still are whenever we would go visit different places. It's not like some of these other fraternities while, while you have a bond, you have a brotherhood, you may not know what the other person went through, but whenever I would go to Tampa or I would go out to California or someplace like that, I could always reach out to one of my brothers and say, Hey man, I'm here for a night. I just need a place to crash. I really don't want to pay a pay for a hotel. And I could literally have a list of people texting me, calling me, emailing me saying, Hey, my place is open. Why don't you come over here? You can absolutely stay at night. That's not a problem. That's I had guys that would leave their keys at the doormat say, Hey man, I'm going to be out of town, but if you need anything, go ahead and use my place. The fridge is yours. Take whatever you need. It's perfectly fine. These guys were just massively open oh, awesome. about it all. Yeah. And so it drew me to that fraternity because I never had any brothers or sisters growing up. It was just me. It was me, my dad, my mom, and my step or my stepfather. And I got a stepbrother who is, I don't even use the word step with him anymore. He's my brother. When my mother married uh, my stepfather, Matt is, has been one of my rocks, especially since the passing of my father. And I can't say enough about him, but he literally took me in as his little brother because he only grew up as a single child as well. So it's, I, I became just blessed with the situations that I just kept falling into. 
it, it really played out for probably the best that it could have ever happened. When I asked John about what made him decide to search for his birth family, he shared a rough time in his life as he dealt with his adoptive parents and their deteriorating health. Remember, John has shared that his dad was like his best friend, open and supportive, even about John's desire to search for his birth family. He said that he had never seen his adoption paperwork before, but would get ideas about doing internet searches for the Chilean embassy in Houston, or searching for international adoption agencies, or even adoption agencies with ties to Chile specifically. All of his searches and attempted phone calls turned into dead ends. In the end, it was John's dad who pulled himself together to help John find the clues that could launch his search. In October of 2016, my father was very sick. He had what's called spinal cellular atrophy. He degenerated and deteriorated throughout the course of my life. I remember as a kid growing up, he would be tall, he would be proud, he would be walking around. He could do a lot of things and gradually over the course of time, his legs and his body was starting to shut down. So by the time he passed away, I was his caretaker. It was my way of paying it forward. He helped me so much through life. It was my time to help him and I did that for probably about a period of three to four years when he couldn't really help himself too much. He had since retired when he was living by himself and just doing his own thing, but he really couldn't utilize his legs and his arms were getting weaker and weaker, among other ailments. And about two to three days before, he sat me down and we talked and I would always go over to his house and I would get him out of bed in the morning and get his day going before I went to work. And then I would do the same thing at night. I'd put him back in bed, make sure everything was okay. But he became incontinent. He was also having some issues with memory, similar to like his mother was. His mother uh, had. She had Alzheimer's, and he was starting to show some signs of it. Not being able to remember things, I would have to write things down for him to make sure that he knew them. But he sat me down, and he asked me, hey, are you okay? That's the biggest thing that I want for you. Just in case anything ever happens to me, he goes, I want you to know that this is where some certain things are in the house. And I didn't know what was going on at the time. I took him to all of his medical appointments, so I was pretty well versed on everything. So I didn't think, okay, dad's not sick and not telling me something here. But I thought it was just a moment of clarity for him. And it was a moment that he just wanted to talk to me and make sure that I was okay. A few days later, I went back to his place and I found him. He, he had taken his own life. Oh, boy. And in the cleanup, I went to the area where he told me things were, and I found some things. I found some things I had never seen before, and they were some of my adoption records. I had never seen these documents, and this was 2016, so this was, I was about 32 years old at the time, 31, 32. I took those, and I ran with them and looked up some different things, but never really got anywhere. Then in March of 2017, my mother had been fighting what's called MDS. It's a, a form of leukemia, almost pre-leukemia. She fell into a, into a coma from an infection, and we subsequently had to let her go. And in the cleanup, my stepfather became, my stepfather and my uncle would then, my stepfather being my mother's husband and my uncle being my, my father's brother became the only parents that I would have anymore. Well, in the cleanup of the house with my stepfather, he told me, he goes, hey, this was your mother's fire safe. There's some things in here that you're probably going to want to see. And I did. I looked at them and, and there it was. It was all the rest of my original adoption papers, my original birth certificate, my Chilean birth certificate, my naturalization papers for the United States, all of it was all there. And I had, I had never seen any of this. In my 30 some odd years of living, this was the first time I had ever seen them. So that was a kind of a starting point for me from there. I just want to pause you for a quick second. First, I'm so sorry for how your parents died both in such close proximity to each other. And of course, the surprise of your father, you know, deciding to end it all. And I wanted to ask you, about what you saw in those documents like you have grown up as john in houston texas mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you've you know identified as a hispanic latino guy 
but now you're actually seeing yourself as another person on paper mm -hmm. from another country. What did you see in those papers and how did it hit you when you saw it? I saw a different person. I saw somebody that I didn't know existed. It was the beginning of something life altering because these documents were held very close and some of this information was held very close my whole life. So I felt like I was starting to look at somebody completely different, a different version of myself that was out there and I had never met. To say it was a mind job is a vast understatement. What did you think sometimes when people see the specifics of what's been withheld from them, they recalculate their relationship with their parents, right? Did you do any of that? Did you say, why didn't they tell me? Did, you, did your trust in them change? Did your judgment of how you had been, the information had been withheld change at all? No, it didn't. And that was the time when I started asking more questions. And I would ask my stepfather, why did my mother abandon me for that period of time? And this is when I started really putting some things together. Apparently, not long after my mother and father separated and my mom had started seeing my now stepfather, she had gotten a call from the Chilean embassy. And it was a Chilean national. He said he was an official and, and he was just asking how I was doing, if I was okay. And it freaked my mother out. It really did to the point where she put me into hiding and she put me into hiding specifically with my father. It started coming full circle. My mother and I reconciled a lot about the different things that I did when I was a kid and our relationship became a lot more loving and a lot more what it should have been because I started figuring out some truths and started growing up and having more maturity about my mistakes. But when I heard that she had put me into hiding, I immediately forgave her because she was just doing what she had always done. She was protecting me. She was afraid someone was going to come from Chile and take me back and take me away from her. Mm -hmm. wow. it, it literally terrified her to the bone. I then also realized that's why she never wanted me to go looking until I was older because she was afraid that if I found something down there, that they would try to take me back and they would be able to keep me and she wouldn't be able to find me again. It was a fear that was deeply embedded with her. And there was no arguing it. There was no fighting it. There was no trying to reason with her when it came to it. I was her son and she wasn't going to let anything happen to me. When it came to all those different things that happened earlier in my life, again, I immediately forgave her. Did you apologize to posthumously thinking, damn, I was a jerk back then? hundred percent I did. hundred percent. hundred percent. Because I was so young that I didn't understand what was truly happening. I thought it was just her. <laughs> Forgive my terminology here, but I thought it was just her being a bitch. <laughs> right. As we often think about our parents, like, why are you such an ass? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And you don't realize, yeah, exactly. like, they're the adults and they know way more than you can ever give them credit for both from life experience and information that they've accumulated that you just don't have as a kid. And so we just automatically think, I'm right, because I know what my life is, even though I'm only so-and-so teen years old, and you just have no idea what they're going through. You know? Yeah, and I thought it was just my mom being just pretentious and suck up, and I thought that she was just too protective of me and wouldn't let me live my life or do anything like that. I never really understood any of that growing up. But yeah. When I talked to my stepfather, looking at those documents, again, all of that just went away. There was no way for me to literally tell her verbally, but there were plenty of times that, and still have been, plenty of times where I go sit by her graveside and just tell her and remind her that, hey, I'm your son, that I, that I love her and that I forgive her for everything, and that I hope that she, I hope that she forgives me. John said his brother Matt, technically his stepbrother, had done 23andMe and suggested John should submit a DNA sample too. At the time, John was with a girlfriend he was considering marrying, but he didn't know his family medical history going into possibly having a child with this woman. 
In 2018, Matt gave John a 23andMe test. I can never thank Matt enough for doing this because I never knew what it was going to lead to. When John's results came back, he logged into the online portal where he clicked the button to help users find their relatives. Clicking it opened connections between his DNA and populations of people across a global map, showing information about distant relatives from countries around the world. Of course, John's deepest interests were in Chile, and when he clicked on that country, the number of relatives he was connected to got significantly higher, as expected. By this time, John had learned that his adoptive mother, father, and grandmother had gone to Santiago, Chile to retrieve him as a baby. John had seen a Chilean birth certificate and a photo with a gentleman he didn't know holding him. 23andMe also revealed a few fourth and fifth cousins in the system in Santiago, so he sent messages to them with information on who he is, provided his Chilean identification number, which he had gotten from his Chilean birth certificate, and he promised everyone he reached out to that he was legit and this connection was not part of a scam. One cousin, Nicholas, wrote back to say that he worked for a group that helped reunite Chilean families. Nicholas explained that in the mid-1970s through the late 1990s, the country of Chile had fallen from a democratically elected president to a regime of military rule under Augusto Pinochet. The Pinochet communist era in Chile was known for brutality and multiple human rights violations. Nicholas told John that many college-aged women were raped by soldiers. Then, after their babies were born, the woman was told their baby could not be found, or their son or daughter died shortly after their birth. The rampant rape and conception of children was going to create a baby boom that Pinochet foresaw destroying his economic goals for the country. So, an estimated 20,000 Chilean babies became products for sale in an enormous adoption ring, trafficking them to adoptive parents in other countries. I found out at the time that we have a name for called the Children of Silence. John's cousin warned him that when he searched for his birth family, he might learn that he was also the product of rape and John should prepare himself. Nicholas asked for a small donation to the search group he belonged to, but pledged that even if John couldn't do so, he was going to help his cousin search anyway. I asked John about that very real possibility of being the product of rape, a fear that many adopted people have, and how it affected him. It was a, a scary feeling, thinking to myself that there's a chance that I could be a product of rape, that had it not been for a violent act, I wouldn't be here. How I would look at the world from then on. It definitely haunted me to think that could be a, ch a thing. And I would talk to my uncle and my stepfather about it. And both of them were just very supportive in, in telling me that, hey, if this is the case and it, it does something to you, we're going to be there to help you. But they would constantly reassure me and just kind of tell me, hey, if this is the case, just remember the life that you have led so far and how lucky and how fortunate you have been. And just be grateful for that. See the good in it see that there was something good that came from it. They helped keep me balanced, as did my brother. And at the time, as did my girlfriend. She was very supportive. She was, she's Mexican-American and basically grew up literally right on the border of Texas and Mexico. And she was extremely supportive about it all and just saying, hey, if this is the case, we're going to be there. Wow. And so it, it was reassuring for sure. John emailed the group of distant cousins again, trying to reassure them he was not a scam. He had also sent Nicholas copies of his Chilean birth certificate and his adoption papers. So, a week or two later, Nicholas got back to John with unbelievable news. Your mother and father are alive. And when he said that, my heart dropped. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. He goes, I'm pretty sure they're alive. They're identification number is still active, which is our equivalent of social security number. Oh, and he goes, I know who they are, but I can't get a hold of them because I don't have an email address. It doesn't look like they have social media because I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. So he did. And then he emails me a message back maybe a day later. It says, Hey, you have a brother and a sister and 
both of them have social media. I'm going to send her, since she's the older one, a message. He goes, just be patient with this. About two days later, I get a message from him again that says, hey, your sister, this is her email. She's expecting an email from you. They're aware of the situation. They're aware of who you are. They're obviously a little hesitant. This is a start for you. So I said, okay, great. So I email her. This is who I am. This is what I know. This is what I have. And apparently your mother is my mother. Whoa. Um, and I was like, I promise I'm not a scam. Here's a link to my Facebook. Here's a link to my Instagram. And here's a link to uh, the website for the, the company that I work for currently that has my profile on it. So I get an email back from her that says, we need to discuss this with the family. Please don't message me again until I've had an opportunity to do this. So I, I, I had to come to grips with, okay, I'm sitting in limbo now. And I think I waited maybe about a week and a half. I get an email from her that says, we talked to our mother. She's told us the story. We have called for my two youngest sisters to come back from the north of Chile from vacation. We would like to set up a video call with you. And I said, <laughs> I was like, I don't speak Spanish, but isn't that just a little fast? And she goes, no, it's not. Because as soon as I told my mother, she dropped to her knees oh my and started crying. And she said that they wanted to, to see me because they had seen my pictures now. And I said, okay, what's the story behind it? I said, am I a product of rape? And my, she goes, well, mom needs to tell you this stuff uh, because the whole story is very sad. And she confirmed it for me. She goes, you are not a product of rape. And that's when it really started becoming real. Leading up to the video meeting, John and his sister spoke over WhatsApp. He said it was nerve-wracking as he questioned whether he should really be going through with this reunion. John wrestled with a bunch of questions about his loyalty to his adoptive parents and whether, if they were alive, they would worry that he would begin calling his birth parents mom and dad. Question after question rolled through John's head. John was very concerned that his inability to speak Spanish would be a real barrier for his rapidly approaching adoption reunion video chat. He organized the call to be scheduled for a time when his then-girlfriend, a woman of Mexican descent and a Spanish speaker, could be present to translate his relative's conversation for him. With his girlfriend by his side, John Skype called his birth family in Santiago, Chile. As soon as I saw the, my mother on the screen and after my sister introduced her, it, it became clear I look like this person. Wow. And it was, it, it was life-altering. For sure, really. Um, to to feel that, and and then to see siblings who also looked like me, and that's when I found out the real story about what happened. So, what did they tell you? Essentially, my mother and my father, who was also on the call, fell in love when they were young, and she got pregnant with me. And in February of 1985, my grandmother found out. And her and my grandfather were ashamed of my mother. Essentially, what they did was they put my mother into hiding in this orphanage-type place with midwives and, and other women who were pregnant and everything like that. They didn't want any part of it. My grandfather worked for a hospital. He was a, an ambulance driver, and he knew all of these people that were essentially helping to take all these babies. What happened was my father could never find my mother. He was worried about her. He was worried something happened to her. He knew she was pregnant and never really got to see her. And they lived four or five houses down from each other growing up. Day comes, I'm born. My mom said that she was in the hospital with me for probably about two to three days breastfed me, held me, everything. And then they took her into a room with a bunch of people and a nurse and a doctor. And they said that they were going to check me out one more time to make sure that I was healthy enough to go home. That was the last time she saw me. Oh. They essentially kidnapped me. 
and my grandfather, what I now uh, know is was the orchestrator of all this. My mother and my father then ran away. They were obviously devastated. And they spent days and months of time together, and then they separated. It was difficult for them both. My mother remarries, or my mother marries, and she has four kids through this man. So all my brothers and sisters are all half-brothers and half-sisters. And my father did the same thing. He married a woman. So on my mother's side, I have three sisters and one brother. And on my father's side, I have two sisters. But of all the children, I'm the oldest. I found out then also from my sister that, that my father had always been around them. He was always really close to their family. And my sister said she never really knew why. She was always told that this man is just a good friend of my mother. Hmm. But then when she found out the story, then it all made sense as to why they were so well connected. Wow. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the heartache of your mother being in the hospital there with you, breastfeeding you, caring for you, loving you like she's going to be able to keep you, and then for you to just be literally ripped from the family and sent off somewhere else. And mm -hmm. I couldn't help thinking of how cruelly ironic it was for the grandfather who tried to orchestrate this baby being basically erased from town, erased from the family. He ends up trying to remove you, but ends up losing his own daughter in as a consequence. And I'm sure exactly. it must have been so hard for her to ever forgive him for what he did, if she ever did. I can't imagine. It. I don't think she has. Yeah. I don't think that she has. How do you forgive somebody for ripping a baby from you that you're trying to raise? I just don't know how you I ever think get you, I don't know that you can. Yeah. I don't know that she can. Oh, my God. She, from that time, we, I told them, I said, look, I see the resemblance. I see everything. But I can't get emotionally invested until I have DNA. And that took about three, four months uh, to get back. And when it came back 50-50, again, my heart, my heart sank. And at that time, getting back to my mother, she said that she then went to go see her father. My grandmother has since passed away. But she said that she went to go see her father. He's in his 80s, don't really know how much time he has left. She's never really interacted with him very much since that day. And my brothers and sisters have never really had a relationship with him or that side of the family. And she said she went and talked to him. And still to this day, he denies that she was ever pregnant, denies that she ever had a kid, that she's dreaming, that it's a figment of her imagination. And she told him that she found me and that I found them. And he refuses to acknowledge it to this day because you have to see in Chile, there are men and women that are going to prison right now for this giant ring of human trafficking. They are literally looking to put all these people away because it is a stain on that country and a uh, stain on their reputation. My grandfather is terrified of being identified and going to jail. And it's, I don't, I don't blame him, but that's where I then realized that when my mother got that phone call asking if I was okay and she got freaked out, that wasn't anybody trying to take me. That was the Chilean government figuring out where all these children had gone and they were contacting the families to make sure that the children were well taken care of. Mm, they were tracking down First all of the children of silence. That's correct. Wow. And it freaked my mother out. She didn't know because Pinochet had just passed away. He had, he had died and been taken out of power. So everything was then coming to light. But my mom didn't know that. Mm -hmm. She was just thought that it was somebody coming to get me possibly. So that goes back. Everything started coming full circle. I want to pause for just a moment to make sure you caught something John said. After his birth, his parents ended up going their separate ways, marrying other people and having children with their spouses. When his birth parents reconnected and finally married each other, they created a blended family of half-siblings. In his adoption reunion, 
All of John's birth parents' children are half-siblings to each other and half-siblings to John. John is the only child in the family who is biological to both parents. As I'm sure you can imagine, a video conference from America to Chile, seeing his birth mother's face and hearing the heart-wrenching story of his own grandfather's facilitation of his adoption was a lot, but not enough for John to feel reunited. He decided he had to make the highly emotional trip to Santiago, Chile. To say it was nerve-wracking, there was a lot of anxiety. To say I was nervous, to say I was questioning whether I, 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 I should be doing this or if this was even real life or anything like that, all of that is just a profound understatement. There's no way to describe the feeling because there's not just one. There are multiple different emotions being felt in doing this. I was supposed to go in, in 2020. I, I had bought plane ticket and everything. I was ready to go. But then COVID happened and the world shut down. So I couldn't really do it. Skype has a fantastic feature to where if I send a message out in English, it will shoot it out to them in Spanish and vice versa. So that's how I contact them, and that's how I talk to them, even still to this day. Wow, that's incredible. And they would do video calls with me on my birthday, and, and, and we would do video calls on my mom's birthday and Christmas and, and all these other things. So we kept in touch, but then this time last year, I had just gotten back, actually, from the trip. But probably about a week ago this time last year, two weeks ago this time last year, I finally went down and I, you know, packing for it. You don't really know what to pack. You just know that it's cold down there because it's opposite equator. Mm -hmm. It's there in their winter and it's an overnight flight. And to say I had some alcohol on the way down there was is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Try to get me to loosen up a little bit right. and we'll not be uh, anxious over. on the entire flight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tell the pilot, hey, turn around because I really don't want to go now. <laughs> oh my gosh. People talk about love at first sight all the time, and, and you hear the stories of it. I never really understood what that was until I got through security and customs, and they were all there waiting for me. They had signs and everything, and my mom and my dad rushing to me and literally not letting go, and my mother just breaking down. I, I think it was one of the most emotional things I'd ever experienced in my life, and I never really knew what love at first sight was until that moment. And I'm just thinking about it. I've got chills still, and, and I still look at the video of it. And my mother's screaming, you know, mijo, mijo, my son, my son. Mm -hmm. And it was a life-altering trip. I tell people all the time, I'm not a very religious person. I am Catholic by baptism and communion and all that, but... I don't really practice. I don't really go to church very much. I'm pretty sure the last time I was in a church was when my mother passed away for her funeral. But I truly do believe in my heart of hearts that if there is a heaven, that my mother and father are both there and that they reconciled and talked to each other and basically told each other, hey, this needs to happen and we need to show him the way of how to get this done. And I believe that. I really, I am sorry. I'm crying a little bit right now, but yeah, I really bro, do. My, my eyes are burning too, so don't feel alone. <laughs> wow! But I really believe that they that they gave me the the strength to find them because they wanted me to have a mother and a father again, and they didn't want me to be alone. And there's also your own desire for truth out of your life, and that you deserve that truth. And they knew that, right? Yeah, that's your belief. I hope I'm so. sure that's a piece of it too. That they believe that you deserve the truth, and I hope they so. were going to guide you and help you get there. That you deserve to know the whole thing. That's really amazing. Wow. But yeah, I, I know it now. And I met um, my mother. I met my father. I met all my brothers and sisters, and my aunt and my grandmother, my father's mother, and it was a a life changing trip to see where you're from, mm -hmm. who your people are, your native country, where you should have grown up. I realized that since his birth mother had kept him for a few days, breastfeeding and caring for her newborn son, she would have named him. John was originally named Luis after his grandfather on his birth father's side of the family. After such a life-altering trip to Santiago, Chile, 
seeing people with whom he shares biology, looks, and culture. I wondered what it was like for John to return to his life in the United States. John told me he is now very aware of who he is, and he's very open with people about his story for its ability to bring attention to the terrible way that he and other adopted children end up in their families. I, I work in sports medicine, and I work with athletes all the time, I'm with them on a daily basis. And for them to hear this story was different for them. They see this person that is Latino, and they also see this person that has a multitude of tattoos on his arm and is very open about who he is. And I kept that truth, and I'm very open about who I am with everybody that I'm around. But there are certain things that I will go on crusades about, uh, certain topics, you know, one of them being suicide, and the other one being human trafficking and bringing awareness to this terrible thing that happened and how there's a lot of good that's come out of it. I've been able to be on a group chat now with other Chilean adoptees who have either found their parents or are trying to still find their parents. My mother is a part of a group of women who are like her and they showed me where I was supposed to live. They want to come here to the United States and they want to see where I grew up. They want to pay their respects to my mother and father. They want to see where I grew up and where I was raised. And we're trying to, I don't want to say relive, but catch up for 37 years of lost time and <laughs> trying to figure out how we do that as best as possible. But it's been mind-blowing, life-altering and revealing and I'm going to continue to be open about it and continue to tell the story because I think it's important. And I think people need to realize that this thing, this terrible thing happened. Yeah. And there are still plenty of children out there that were adopted based upon these phony adoption agencies and they still haven't found their parents. Wow. You know, I guess final comment for me is a lot of times we think of human trafficking as these figures in the dark who are mm -hmm. lurking around and they just come out into the light for a second, convince somebody that they want to give a child a different life, and that it's this super nefarious criminal activity. But in fact, it was in the family for you. Like this was your grandfather who put you into this situation. It's just I, I couldn't help thinking of how you naturally think of the criminality of the human trafficking piece as being a stranger when in fact, this was your own grandfather who, who pushed you out of the family. It's just a real sort of awful connection. Wow. And while my story is different, it still is trafficking. Everybody has an idea of it. This day, oh, human trafficking, it's in regards to sex. It's mostly going to be women. Not necessarily. This was a giant orchestrated ring. And a giant injustice that affected an entire country. We are spread throughout the world now. These now adults that should have been raised in a different country. And we were displaced. Some of us got lucky. Some of us didn't. I got to be one of the lucky ones. And I wasn't a product of rape. And I wasn't just regular stolen. So it's similar, but it's also different in and of itself. It's a unique portion of it. But in the end, I was still trafficked. Yeah, that's right. John, I'm so grateful to you for coming and sharing your story. I always like to hear how adoptive parents are supportive and how they are reactive to different situations. And I think it's so sort of enlightening to understand what your parents were going through, but also how they were navigating life, sort of trying to protect you. And you didn't realize that this was protection. It wasn't just being awful parents as you think a teenager is. And also yeah. in the context of how layered your story is that you truly had no clue the depths of what they were trying to protect you from. But also then to hear this support from your uncle and your stepdad and your brother that leads you on this journey that actually lets you set foot in Santiago, Chile is absolutely incredible. And I just... I was envisioning this airport 
reunion <laughs> and these two biological parents coming at you and probably a suffocating hug that put you right back in the center of their heart in a way that you could never have gotten any other way except to be standing on their country soil in their arms. That must have just been amazing. So thank you. Oh, it was. And I'm happy to I'm happy to send you the video. I yeah, really I'd am. love to see it. I think it would be amazing, man. Thank you. Yeah. I'll send you the video and obviously I follow you on social media since you know, if you were to look at mine, the literally the first thing that's pinned to my profile is a, a reel of the the trip that I took and it's part of it and me having to say goodbye to them which was really difficult because I literally wanted to I thought about saying nope screw this I'm going to reschedule my flight and I'm going to stay about another week and and all this other stuff I, I truly wanted to do that but yeah I'll send that to you and, and it's there and it's staying pinned for quite some time it's I, I look at it constantly yeah that's awesome John thank you so much for being with me man I appreciate it take care all the best to you okay Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. John grew up supported and protected by his adoptive parents. It was fascinating to hear how his mother was so protective of him out of fear that he would be taken from them. So much so that when someone called looking for John, she separated herself from him to keep him from being found. I can't imagine what it feels like to learn that your adoption was the result of human trafficking. For the adoptees out there who are children of South America, Asia, and other parts of the world where bad actors from people operating outside the regulations of adoption, to governments who have imposed limits on how many children a family can have, to family members seeking to heartlessly remove the shame of a pregnant child by sending that baby away, you did not deserve what happened to you as a child. I am truly sorry. However, I loved hearing that John got to set foot in Santiago, Chile, meet his family, and reclaim his space in their hearts. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in John's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really? If you would like to share the story of your adoption and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow me on Instagram at Damon L. Davis and follow the podcast at WAI Really. If you like the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star review in your podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings do help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out my story and my memoir, Who Am I Really? Available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible, and I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.